our Old Testament lesson, picking up where we left off last week, Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 28. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. And kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson and sermon text, Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? 
He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So the Son of Man, or the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, beloved brothers and sisters, we are marching finally toward the cross of Jesus Christ. As we think about the four gospel accounts, it is important for us to recognize that that word gospel is used in Christian tradition to speak about, centrally, the culmination of the whole story. The climax of the person and work of Jesus Christ. All things in the preceding chapters are building and pressing forward and onward and being then fulfilled by and culminated by that great climactic event of the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. As we read earlier from the beginning of John's Gospel, John the Baptist opens that Gospel by declaring, Behold the Lamb of God! who takes away the sin of the world. As you proceed through the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see many episodes that never make sense, properly speaking, until we come to the cross. The cross brings them to fruition. It answers the looming questions. How can this man forgive sins? How can this man demonstrate such signs indicative of new life and the new creation? How can he speak about a kingdom of heaven? What is it that this Jesus is doing? Today we come to see an aspect of Christ's work and ministry that We commemorate each Lord's Day. We come to the holy table of God. That place where Christ promises to commune with us in a special way. Of course, He communes with us in baptism. He communes with us in the reading and preaching of Scripture. He is with us throughout our lives. But at the holy table of the Lord, these things become even clearer for us like high definition, as we understand with our mouths and with our noses as we smell it and with our hands as we feel it, that indeed the gospel is for us. 
not just out there in the abstract for sinners, but for me, for you, a sinner. God is so kind and gracious. And so, beloved, as we come into this text, we have before us a text that offers much practical instruction for how we think not only about the cross, but of the right of feasting that we observe each Lord's Day according to the instruction of Jesus Christ. So as we begin, our text opens verses 17 through 19. And I want to draw your attention here to that repeated language of Passover and unleavened bread. In these three verses, that language is used four times. We shouldn't miss that unnecessary repetition. As you can see, even hinted at by our Old Testament lesson, the idea of Passover and unleavened bread, which were in some ways two distinct feasts, were really one. And they were speaking about the same, um, uh, the same group of, uh, of uh, ceremonies and events that commemorated the departure from Egypt. And so as we open this text, we're seeing that Passover is important and necessary context for everything that Jesus is about to say and about to do. Well, there are some difficulties within the timeline of what's going on here in this last week, what is often called the Passion Week. I think it's probably best to understand that during the day that we would call Thursday, the disciples were preparing the Passover. Now, the Jewish day would begin at sunset, and so, while we might think of a Maundy Thursday meal happening on Thursday in the evening, it's probably best to think about that as the beginning of Friday, because the sun was going down, or probably had set, and their day would begin not at midnight, as our day begins at midnight, but with darkness, their day would begin. We have here before us a Passover meal, I think probably happening what we would call Thursday night, what they would call the beginning of Friday. As with last week's text, we should note how verses 17 through 19 depict everything as being carefully ordered by Jesus. The disciples did not have a plan, but Jesus did. And he directs them to go to Jerusalem to find a particular man to do things in a particular way. We can probably presume here that Jesus had already met this man and had already told that man to be prepared because maybe, perhaps, he would need to use that man's room for the Passover celebration. And now that man was aware this might be coming or maybe was certainly coming. And so the disciples go find that man and then undertake the preparations. The reason this is significant is that it further establishes that all of the following events, the betrayal, the arrest, the unjust trial, the kangaroo courts, the crucifixion, these are all happening by the plan of Jesus Christ. We saw that in last week's text. We're seeing that here as well. This is not catching Jesus by surprise. The surprise is actually... Um, catching up with the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. 
They're the ones who weren't planning on it happening during the Passover. They're the ones who didn't think that the crowd would come on their side. But no, all these things, even the most wicked events in human history, the crucifixion of God the Son, even that is happening by the predetermined plan of God. How comforting, beloved. For if we consider that God works for good, all things for those who love Him, and as we see that the most wicked event in human history is being orchestrated, being purposed by God, by Messiah, we can take comfort and take hearts in all of our daily sins and misery, all of the wickedness that we encounter, all of the evils that overcome us, we can rest sure that God is indeed working for good through all of the times of misery and of suffering. For we see it at the cross of Jesus with all clarity. The plan of God is being shown forth. That God is bringing glory to Himself and salvation to His people. And these things happen through many injustices and through much suffering. We see here in our text, Passover, we see purpose. We see these things happening even in the midst of betrayal. Consider, beloved, how here we see in verses 20 through 25, the betrayal starting to work itself out. It was important that we had reassurance in those preceding verses that Christ's plan is at work because we could become alarmed at what follows. But we, what we find here instead is that the character who is about to be betrayed is not being caught off guard. It's not coming as a surprise to him. No, he is fully in charge. As we read in verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man <clears throat> is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas is there in that room. He is hearing the words of Jesus. He hears Jesus say those haunting words out loud that all these things were purposed, all these things are being brought to culmination. And what is it that Judas does? As he hears those words, clearly directed to himself, he was not ignorant, even though the other eleven were. What does Judas do? He ignores it. He hardens his heart. And again, with this Passover context in the back of our minds, I think that this invites us to think about the hardness of heart that occurred at the time of the first Passover. As Moses came to Pharaoh repeatedly and spoke that word of God, spoke that word of warning, yet what did Pharaoh do? Nothing. In fact, he hunkered down in his hardness of heart to resist the word of God, to oppose God with great warfare. 
And now, like Pharaoh of old, we have Judas hearing the Word of God and hardening his heart, proceeding with his selfish pleasure. Beloved, this is what sin does to us. It makes us irrational. It spiritually causes us to become deaf. We hear the Word, and then more and more we dismiss it. More and more we act like it's insignificant. We can continue in our sinful, selfish ways. And so we persist down a self-destructive path. Are there areas in your life that you are quarantining off from the Word of God? Are there places where your heart is becoming hardened? Where the Word of God of instruction and of warning is no longer causing you to turn from your sins, but rather you persist down a self-destructive path? In Judas, we see this hardness of hearts toward the Word of God. And rather than us becoming self-righteous and looking down our noses at Judas, let us instead this day be humbled and be warned about the damaging consequences of sin that lurks even inside our own hearts. For Judas, there were so many prophecies, weren't there not, of what he would do, yet he still ignored it. Consider, the Old Testament Scriptures predicted his hardness of heart. From Psalm 41, the king speaks, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Or from Psalm 55, It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. The price of betrayal was foretold in Zechariah 11. They weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. This betrayer would be accursed of God. Psalm 69. May his camp be desolate. Let no one dwell in it. Or from Psalm 109, may his days be few, may another take his office. As we see, Judas and the leaders had their plans. But even betrayal and hard-heartedness do not ultimately win the day. God is victorious. His plan is unfolding. Before we move on, I should note that within verses 20 through 25, it's worth also pointing out that the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples is difficult. I learned as a young child that my mom's tone of voice was just as important as the words that came out of her mouth. The tough thing we have here is that we have the words, but not the tone of voice. And so it's hard to interpret what's happening in this dialogue. How were these things being said? Each of the twelve, in turn, asks Jesus, Is it I, Lord? 
Then Jesus pronounced a woe on his betrayer Judas. Then Judas responded to that woe, asking, Is it I, Rabbi? Is he just playing dumb? Does he have a bit of a look in his eye, like they both know what's going on? What's going on there in the tone of his voice as he looks to Jesus and says that? And then what is Jesus saying at the end when he says, you have said so, as translated by the ESV? It's hard to translate this phrase. That's a possible rendition, you have said so. It could also be, well, you spoke up. (laughs) Or it could be, you tell me. It's hard to know what exactly is going on there, but even if the details are elusive to us, we know what's going on. Jesus knows. Judas knows. The eleven are oblivious. The plan is marching forward. God is in charge, even in the midst of great wickedness. Our second point, hardness and betrayal. Third, and let's spend the bulk of our time here on this great feast, verses 26 through 30. In the final verses of our text, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. Unfortunately, this is now popularly called, this event, the Last Supper. That could not be further from the truth. This is actually the First Supper and the first in a series of events and feasts that stretch onward into the new creation. So the first thing here I want to bring out for us is that this is a new creation meal. That the Lord's Supper is not the last. It is the first in Matthew 26 because the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that, what we would call, eschatological banquets, the new creation banquets, the feast, the great wedding reception that awaits us in resurrection glory. Verse 29 makes this clear, where Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, Jesus and his apostolic church will again gather around the table together, face to face, sharing the exact same cup, except it will not be in this age. The day when we share a cup with Jesus, face to face, is when the kingdom is at last consummated. This here is not a last supper. It was a first. Jesus inaugurated a feast that stretches forward into the new creation. The second point of reflection here upon this great feast, it is a table of thanksgiving. As noted already, the context here is the Passover meal. And this was an environment of celebration. It's a feast. It's a time of thanksgiving. Throughout that feast, there were prayers of blessing or praise. And notice how Jesus continued that practice in our text. Verse 26, he blessed 
the bread. The idea here of blessing the bread is blessing God for the bread, thanking God and praising God for those gifts that he gives us in creation and also in redemption. Notice also, verse 27, another part of the Passover meal is also what we see here, prayers of thanksgiving. Jesus took a cup and gave thanks, verse 27. This is again why we in our church are very purposeful that when we gather around the table of the Lord, we are not doing so with sorrow, as if we are at a wake for a funeral. We are gathering around a table to bless the Lord, to thank the Lord, to rejoice with the Lord. We see this, we see this continuing from the Passover into the Lord's institution of the Holy Supper. The Lord's Supper in the earliest centuries was called Eucharist for good reason. Eucharist just means thanksgiving. Sadly, in our day, it's become a corrupted word that now suggests a sacrifice for sins. But that could not be further from the truth. We gather to give thanks. We gather to receive. We gather to bless our God. Why? Because the sacrifice for sin has already been made. And he gives to us generously. And so we thank him and we bless him as we receive from him. We are right to bless God, give him thanks. Our second reflection, at the great feast, we give thanks. It is a time of thanksgiving. Third, we see here within our text that this great feast is a liturgical feast. Insofar as we understand from the historical record, which lines up actually very well with what we see that Jesus is doing here, the Passover meal was carefully scripted. So too, common meals, Sunday through Friday, were very carefully scripted with a liturgy within the Jewish um, homes. But even more so when you came to the Holy Feast days. Not only were there uh, established prayers of blessing and thanksgiving, but the man who led the meal would recite certain prayers on behalf of the participants. There were liturgical responses that the attendees would recite, and there were various ritual actions, some of which we read from Exodus 12, others that were added later. For example, they would not just wait in case maybe a kid would ask the question, what do you mean by this service, which is suggested in Exodus 12, if your child would ask this question, then give him an answer. No. What they would do, at least by the time of the first century, certainly much earlier than that, they would actually appoint that one of the children who's there would ask the question. And so then, the leader of the feast would then give the answer to that question in order to instruct the entire uh, gathering in that household what was going on. Reminding them, of what God had done in Egypt, how he had struck 
the Egyptians with ten plagues. How the tenth and climactic plague was a death of the firstborn within the homes of the Egyptians. But the Jewish families were spared. Why? Because a different death had occurred for them, for their firstborn, the death of a spotless lamb. So they were spared. The judgment passed over their homes. And so then in the morning, after they had eaten of the sacrificial lamb, after they had eaten of the unleavened bread, the doors swung open and they went forth into freedom from Egyptian slavery. Praise God for redemption. Or at least it was something like that that they would have said in response to that child. In the midst of this liturgical setting, they also had established set songs that they would sing. At the Passover, they would sing what we call the Egyptian Hallel. Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. We're singing three of those today in our service. We sing all of those songs when we have our Maundy Thursday barbecue in the, uh, in the upcoming months because they were taking those songs they were reminiscing about the ancient Passover events. But as they sang those songs, they were also preparing themselves for the second Passover, the second Exodus, the arrival of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 30 alludes to this. In verse 30, we read, Now when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is not Charles Wesley or Fanny Crosby. It could maybe more um, literalistically be translated, woodenly, after they had hymned God. In other words, after they had praised God. The uh, final within that Egyptian praise or Egyptian Hallel is Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The liturgical backgrounds of Jewish feasts, especially the Passover, is one reason that our church, along with churches since the earliest centuries, utilizes set liturgies when celebrating the Lord's Supper. Our text today, Matthew 26, is situated within a liturgical context, and it supports a liturgical trajectory into the New Covenants. So our third characteristic of the great feast, it should be liturgical. Fourth, it is a sacramental feast. It is a sacramental feast. Bread represents something. The body of Jesus Christ. Wine represents something. The blood of Jesus Christ. The bread and wine remain bread and wine. Notice what Jesus says in verse 29. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. It's still wine. Until that day and so forth. Now he had already issued the words of institution according to some other traditions. That then changes, according to them, it changes the bread into body, it changes the wine into blood, so it's no longer bread, it's no longer wine, 
But what does Jesus say here? After he had pronounced the words of institution, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day. It's still wine. They represent something. However, we should also recognize, beloved, that these are not empty symbols. They're not empty symbols. That's kind of where we end up gravitating. The kind of avoidance of the Roman Catholic error is oftentimes obvious to us. But then we treat, retreat to a more Baptistic approach, at least what's commonly a Baptistic approach, of just saying, well, it's a pure memorial. There's no communion in communion. Beloved, Jesus gives us bread and wine that we might truly have koinonia with him. 1 Corinthians 10, fellowship with him, communion with him. He gives himself to us mysteriously. And he uses bread and wine as instruments, as vehicles of his mysterious self-giving. The bread does not become body. The wine does not become blood. But they are instruments in God's hand to deliver Jesus and all of his saving benefits. Here we should note that during Jewish sacrifices, it was important that blood of the sacrificial animal be poured out be separated from the body, be collected, as we read in Exodus 12, in a basin. Once they got to the temple, they'd pour the, the blood out at the temple. Uh, you know, they'd carry it in basins and pour it out. And in Egypt, we see that they took that blood from the basin and painted the doorway, and then they would have the body was distinct from that. Those two were separated from one another at the time of sacrifice. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that there is a fad, a trend in our day to take bread and dip it into the wine. That doesn't really jive with what Jesus is teaching here. And it obscures the symbolism of Christ's sacrifice. The separation of body and blood, these two being brought into distinction, means death. It means sacrifice. To recombine them by dipping and then only eating obscures the symbolism of what is being given to us in Matthew 26 and throughout the words of institution. Furthermore, Jesus teaches us to do two things with these two elements, to eat and to drink. If you dip with intinction, all you're doing is eating. You're just eating soggy bread. Now, that might be fine if you have an adult professing member who cannot eat bread for some medical reason, but that's the extraordinary. That's the exception. These two things are meant to be distinguished, separated, because the symbolic purpose is to say sacrifice, because we are participating in Christ's sacrifice. We're not making one, but Christ was sacrificed. That is then given to us to participate in we are called then to do two things, to eat and to drink. These are sacramental elements to partake of Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. 
And to finally, fifth, receive his benefits. This meal is beneficial for us. Consider the benefits that we see just here in our text. Verse 28. This is a meal that is covenantal. This is my blood of the covenants poured out for many. There is an allusion here to Exodus 24, where at Sinai, the blood of the covenants was sprinkled upon God's people to ratify with them his covenants. When we partake of the bread and of the wine, what is God doing, therefore? He is ratifying for us his covenant promises that he will be our God and we will be his people. Furthermore, we see here at the end of verse 28, this meal delivers a particular benefit to us of the forgiveness of our sins. Of course, it does not deliver forgiveness to those who eat and drink with hardness of hearts like Judas. No, Jesus pronounced woes on him even though he ate the bread and drank the cup. The issue was he ate with an unbelieving heart. He was not being forgiven. No, he would face God's judgment. But for those who come to the table with repentant hearts, trusting in Jesus Christ, hearing God's promises, trusting that they are being ratified in the covenantal meal, to them, to you, beloved, your sins are being washed away afresh. You're being renewed in that glorious gift of our justification. You are participating in your Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world as He gives Himself to you sacramentally via bread and wine. We are having a foretaste of that new creation banquet table that awaits us. And so we partake with thanksgiving in our hearts. We partake and celebrate with one another before God's throne. Beloved, as we gather today, as we come to the moments before Christ will be arrested, as we come to meditate upon His death for sinners, as we think about these sorrows and sins that He carried, the betrayal of the disciples, Beloved, we are coming to a divinely purposed event that brings for you and for me life when we were once dead. Forgiveness where we once were condemned. Beloved, we come into right standing with a God who by nature would have been opposed to us. And so this morning, let us bless our God let us give thanks to him as we gather around his holy heavenly table and wait for that day looking forward to the time when we will share that cup with our Savior face to face in the kingdom of our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.